Hello and welcome to a special edition of Greening the News with me, Sarah Mukherjee, here in Sharm el-Sheikh during COP27. Now, as we record this, I'm in the blue zone as an IEMA observer of the negotiations. So we thought we'd bring you some insight and behind the scenes about what's happening here and what is likely to happen in the next couple of days. And we've got a stellar IEMA team to bring you that insight and comment. First of all, our Deputy CAO, Martin Baxter, who's a regular attendee at COPS. Uh, Tom Pashby, our digital journalist, who was here last week as well. And Chris Seekings, our transformed journalist and deputy editor. Martin, Tom and Chris have all been updating IEMA members during the conference. So, Martin, first of all, um, you're back in relative sanity. Uh, what were your impressions of Sharm? And uh, do you think we've seen any progress? Thanks, Sarah. And yes, yeah, I think there has been some progress, actually. I think... Um, Right at the start of the um, of the conference, um, what was interesting was the um, the passionate plea from Pakistan to include loss and damage on the agenda. And clearly, Pakistan has had both record temperatures and devastating floods. And for the first time in COP, um, then that has been included on the agenda, um, and that's vitally important because we have to be able to. Um, ensure that finance flows from um, the the wealthy countries to those who are suffering the effects of climate change through no fault of their own. So I think that's a really important statement. I I don't think there'll be a great deal of progress in terms of really getting into that in massive amounts of detail, other than, you know, there is um, kind of, it looks like things are set for next year as well on this. But clearly, you know, having consistently failed to deliver the hundred billion US dollars per year, which was um, negotiated, you know, back at the Paris Agreement, and the developing developed world not actually stood up to that. I think this is, you know, really important. That this happens. Um, I think the other thing as well, this COP does feel different um, in a really good way. Um, I think delegations from around the world. Um, have more of a focus on delivery than I've seen before. So before it's all been about what's the level of ambition and now it's how are we going to translate that ambition into action. And being the first cop in um, Africa, I think is really good as well and had lots of conversations from people around the world about what's happening. And while the high level negotiators are doing their stuff, I think there's been a real sense of Um, togetherness, sharing experience and insight and supporting people as well. So that's that's been really positive. I I mean, you're absolutely right that there's a lot of talk about delivery and a lot of really innovative solutions. But um, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, close friends who is a negotiator and has been here since the very first COP, which just shows how old we all are now, um, he said, this is fine, but we are still, uh, and we've had a, uh, as we speak, we've had a, a draft cover text uh, released by the Egyptian government. We're still talking about how to get the mechanisms in place. There's very little about real genuine targets and very little about how you deliver at that COP level, even though, as you quite rightly say, Martin, that's happening uh, on a ground level and at a business, country and organisational level. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, getting those mechanisms right is really important and it's incredibly frustrating and dispiriting that they haven't been done um, a long time ago and that those negotiations are still having to take place. 
I think as well, you know, that draft cover text that's um, or framework that's come out is, you know, one of the big holes in it is the lack of um, reference at all to skills, jobs, employment, training, education. So the means by which we're actually going to deliver on our climate ambition, I mean, yes, we need the technology and the investment, but if we don't invest in people and give them the skills and capability to deliver this, then we are going to fall short. And so that's a real weakness, I think, in in where we are at the moment. Having said that, I've spoken to lots of delegations and you know, ILO and, and others around this whole skills agenda. So there are things happening at national level, but I don't think it does need a concerted effort. And certainly speaking to some of the African delegations, what they also need is funding to be able to do that, which is why mm. loss and damage and other funding factors are absolutely critical. Yeah, we, I think it's, loss and damage is a big enough issue to maybe explore it in a bit, Martin. But, but Tom, you um, it's your second COP, I think I'm right in saying, um, it struck me that it's a lot more diverse this time. I mean, you've been speaking to lots of IEMA members, but it felt much more diverse than than 26 was in Glasgow. I don't know if you felt the same way. Yeah, I um, I did go to Glasgow, COP26, and I also went to, I think, one day of COP25 in Madrid. Um, but yeah, you're definitely right that there seems to be a lot more diversity in Egypt um, at COP27, um, just from seeing people around and like all the different national pavilions from African countries and um, Asian countries. But also there are a lot of complaints I heard from people saying that the very high prices of entry, as in paying for things like food and accommodation, meant that lots of people from the global south were just not able to attend. So that obviously weakens their negotiating position because if you don't have the people there, they don't have their voice heard at the you know the top table. Um yeah, so there's a lot of kind of visual diversity, but I'm not sure whether there is enough kind of formal diversity, yeah. if that makes sense, of the diplomats who you need representing those developing yeah, countries. That, that's a, a really, really good point. And it's something that came up several times on the calls, the pre-COP calls that we had uh, the organising. I mean, there was a lot of concern that hotels that had been booked at a particular price were cancelled and then uh, you had to pay a lot more for them uh, to get here. And and you're absolutely right. If, you, if you're not at the table to begin with, and this is something that our members, Sub-Saharan African members have said, isn't it? That you have to have a face-to-face COP because you can't do this on Zoom. You can't do it on Wi-Fi, particularly if you don't have reliable infrastructure to support you. And so if you're not here, you're not getting your voice heard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, there's been a lot of challenges. There are some very obvious challenges that the Egyptian government has faced in delivering those kind of basic bits of infrastructure. And I think one of them might be visible to listeners in this call because Sarah's voice is slightly dropping out every now and then. And that is because of the not fantastic broadband infrastructure in Sharm El Sheikh, even though Sarah, I believe you're possibly in the mm-hmm. blue zone right now. When I was there, I was able to use the the media facilities, the facilities that are available to journalists. So I was able to plug my laptop in. But even that kind of hardwired broadband wasn't fantastic. And if you don't have 
great communications that's the whole that's the whole conference it's all about communicating and speaking with you know delegations respective experts back home to be able to work out what they want from the negotiations and also obviously communicating with the wider public through mass media that's just that's a major issue and that doesn't even come to all the food water and everything else chris you've been reporting on cops for for a long long time now through a transform magazine um and uh, you know when you're here you tend to get completely uh, you know a kind of tunnel vision on oh they've taken the square brackets off this particular bit of 6.2 and does that mean that we're going to get uh, increased ndcs and all this kind of wonky stuff do you think that any of this is really landing with a wider and more general audience or even indeed with uh, sustainability professionals who aren't, who aren't here well, I mean, watching from afar, uh, the conference obviously didn't get off to a particularly good start uh, after delegates spent so long just trying to get the issue of uh, loss and damage on the agenda, which um, is something that I know so many people are interested in. And uh, that actually delayed the start of the conference by several hours. So it wasn't the best of starts, which uh, seemed quite alarming uh, watching uh, from afar back here in the UK. Um but since then, uh, I think there have been uh, some positive announcements that have been made uh, and people can see some progress, which is definitely taking place. But again, just like at the start of the conference, the issue of loss and damage really is the thing that uh, people will, a lot of people, I think, will use as an indicator of whether this COP was successful or not. And so everybody's really just uh, paying attention now to the next 24, 48 hours to see what comes out. There, some of our own members who are part of negotiating groups for um, Global South countries have said that it's getting to the stage where some countries really don't know why they're participating in the process. Because as Martin has said, since Paris, they've been told, yeah, these billions are on the way. And yet, Funnily enough, they're still not here. And certainly, and okay, it's a cover text. It's not supposed to be the final document, but there's not a huge amount about how that money is going to be delivered even now. I mean, do you think that this could be a, a real turning point and not necessarily for the better if, if loss and damage isn't recognised as the, the big issue, the big kind of elephant in the room in previous COPs and the big issue now? Yeah, I mean, the 20-page draft cover text does include no details on a fund for loss and damage at the moment. And as I said, people really will look at that as a litmus test to whether this was a successful COP. I mean, it was encouraging, though, to see uh, G20 leaders this week uh, agree to pursue efforts to keep 1.5 the target alive and within reach. Uh, so hopefully that will add some impetus to the talks over the next uh, day or potentially longer than that. <laughs> Martin, inevitably, when you've got political leaders here, these events become political, even though the intention of them is any, in some ways anything but. Um, but uh, there will be people who say, oh, here we go again. You know, this is just more um, uh, taking money from uh, northern countries to give it to southern countries with no, with no, uh, no strings attached. You know, if, if you're from a political, a particular political view, you'll say, well, what are we going to get? But in fact, as you quite rightly point out, skills, training, employment, development, these are all job creating and wealth creating measures that could benefit us all in the long term, couldn't they? Uh, absolutely. There's, um, you know, it's very clear that um, the whole move towards green jobs and green skills is something that um, 
you know, overcompensates, if you like, for the transition away from fossil fuels. So in employment terms, there will be more people employed in the green economy than there are in the fossil fuel economy. Um, the, the transition of how you do that is is clearly really important and ensuring, you know, there's been a lot talked about the a just transition. Um, we had um, the Scotland has a pavilion and, uh, and, and that's a focus of attention there, but also the ILO has a you know a, a big campaign on on this as well particularly if you have places you know coal mining areas um, in different parts of the world where you know we need to rapidly move away from coal but in order to do that we also need to give employment prospects and opportunities to those people where multiple generations of and, and and all family members will be dependent on them and that requires support but that actually reduces our risks um, in this whole area, so I think there's a real opportunity to 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 do that, and we have to help them to be able to succeed. Yes, um, Tom, I'd be interested in your your thoughts on this. There, there are a lot of, I mean, certainly COP twenty six. You couldn't turn a corner without there being some uh, amazing demonstrations and really, you know, big demonstrations. It's very tightly controlled here at Sharm el Sheikh, but. Uh, do you think that young people's voices are being heard? Do they feel they're being heard in this? Because the passion and the urgency that uh, these young activists have sometimes can get a bit diluted when you move it up and through the negotiating civil servants and out the other side. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the response to that won't be a surprise to anyone, which is that no, young people's voices aren't being heard and those young the young people who would like to be heard are aware of that and they're complaining a lot about this, particularly online. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a whole load of different reasons for why young people's voices have been left out. The main one, I would say, is because of the cost of attending. In COP, uh, sorry, COP26 in Glasgow, for a lot of people, for a lot of young people who were from at least the UK and maybe Western Europe, it was quite easy to get there because of transport links and uh, a wider variety of accommodation available because you could stay in Glasgow or Edinburgh or the wider area within mm. Scotland um, whereas at Sharm el Sheikh if you want to attend you need to be actually within the city of Sharm el Sheikh which as as we've discussed you, you've got to stay in a in a hotel where um, they're charging a lot of money and the other major part of this is the um, oppressive political environment which exists in Egypt anyway but particularly at COP27 because anyone who's attended will have seen literally about six different types of police and military which creates a very kind of a psychologically oppressive environment in addition to that it is also a physically oppressive environment because there I think there has been a couple of protesty type things at COP um, which have been mm. shut down very quickly some of some of it actually UN police shutting down um, arguments happening from Egyptian government officials, which is for me a very unusual sight, and it kind of says that things are things are not very happy basically. So if that's happening, that creates an environment where it's it, young people aren't going to feel safe engaging in those kind of protests, which we would see as quite normal. Yeah, very very, very good point. Um, 
just to, to wrap up, because um, I, this is a, a special edition, and so uh, we uh, we'll be looking ahead and we'll be reflecting, obviously, on what happened at COP when we finally do get uh, something to talk about that, that's more than just a cover note. And I think that's probably not going to be until well into the weekend. Um, but Martin, I could, if I could ask you first, um, do you think this has been worth it? Do you think it's been all, worth all the carbon used and the air miles travelled and the conversations taking place and and what at best do you think we can get at this stage? Certainly I think it's been valuable and I do get this sense of people looking at how they're going to deliver. Now it's very easy for politicians and political leaders to go back home and, and not act but I do feel a grand swell from civil society as Tom has been saying but also from the business community which has been here um, really looking at how to deliver. And I think the high-level expert group um, report um, on how to uh, ensure that net zero commitments from organizations are not going to be greenwashed. I think that's really important because that's where the real economy is really going to kind of drive things forward. So from that perspective, I'm fairly hopeful um, but it does require everybody to do something. And I think that's the, uh, you know, mm. making sure um, both, you know, developed countries live up to their ambition in terms of reducing emissions. And it's good that the Chancellor, who's been speaking um, half an hour ago or so, you know, recommitted the UK to its 68% reduction in GHGs by 2030. So, you know, nailed on, on that. Um but it's also then having the plan and the strategy to deliver um, at national level where this is really going to be uh, successful or not, actually. Um, so I think that's where we need to focus and giving people um, both the resources and the skills and the capability to do so. Yes. Uh, Chris, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, how... Um... Uh, how this, how different celebrity is valued at COP. Uh, if you were at any other event, it would be an A-list star. And there are a few of those at COP26, of course. Uh, now people have got terribly excited about Joe Biden coming after the midterms, but also uh, Lula, the Brazilian president, uh, who's been here as well and, and making speeches. Um, I mean, do you think that all this actually lands with people who are maybe not in the sustainability and environment profession are we moving ourselves forward with all these conversations i do think that um it lands with some people i recognize that a lot of also see this as just uh an opportunity to greenwash uh their potential their credentials but um and i know that some people will be disappointed with uh the outcomes of the conference over the next few days but it's very difficult to look at these cops as a failure when it's really the only opportunity where so many different people uh, from all around the world can come together to discuss climate change and the environment. So I definitely think it's uh, very valuable. Thanks, thanks, Chris. And Tom, worth the carbon? Worth your carbon? Worth our carbon? Uh, do you think it's been, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get more than the sum of its parts from these rounds of negotiations? It, it's really difficult. It's always a really difficult conversation about mm. the carbon intensity and all the time and money that's put into COPs. Um, I I kind of, I always take the view that we need an all of the above approach to climate action, which means doing all of the things that people are doing in aid of uh, tackling yeah. the climate emergency. And I think it's 
I would say it's always better to try with these things. And I did see on LinkedIn, um, I think last week, somebody did a calculation of the uh, carbon impact of things like COP and um, different people flying in from all over the globe. And the relative impact is actually very small compared to the global carbon uh, global carbon emissions. So I think it's always better to try at least, because if we stop trying, then we're effectively saying goodbye to 1.5 degrees of keeping uh, global heating to within 1.5 degrees of heating. So I think it's always worth trying, um, even if it feels very difficult and feels very disappointing, um, which it will do to many, many people. But yeah, I think on balance, it is worth doing Thanks. it. What very wise words, Tom. Uh, Martin, Chris, Tom, thank you very much indeed for your thoughts and insight. Uh, so we will be here. We'll continue to blog and uh, provide insight and information for members uh, until the bitter end and even beyond. But don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Aiman net and on linkedin facebook and instagram so that's all for now from this special edition of greening the news we'll be back soon uh, with another 30 minutes of interesting news comment and insight see you then bye